Good evening and welcome to another edition of Law Focus. My name is Millicent Ndiweni and I am not alone. I am with my colleague attorney. Tapa Mohapi. And together we will be your voice of law for the evening right here on VowFM 88.1. Now, something that we might take for granted sometimes is the reality that you might be at work and you get injured or you might even contract a disease during the nature of the work that you do. Yeah, as a result of the environment perhaps that you work in, say it's dusty or whatever the case may be. Exactly. And we want to know, do you know where you're supposed to go to make sure that you get the correct compensation for that? Because there actually is means for you to be compensated in the event that such injuries or diseases arise during the nature of the work that you do. Yeah, well, it's important that you know that and what's going to go on in your um, in your work environment, what rights you have, and if you do get injured uh, or you contract an illness, uh, what recourse you've got as well. Is there anything available to you uh, so that you can be compensated? And we're going to share a story of someone, Maria Matlangu, who had an experience with the Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act, which is one of the reasons why we thought it pertinent for us to actually have this conversation today. Of course, we're not going to have the conversation without guests. We're going to be joined by Ms. Doria Kente, who is an organizer for the South African Domestic Services and Allied Workers Union, as well as Ms. Kilebukhile Kunovu, who is a researcher at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute. As always, we want your input. It wouldn't be a conversation without you. And if you want to join us, you can. Uh, you can join us using the hashtag uh, on, to, on Twitter of at LawFocus and uh, you can discuss it with us there. And we always welcome your input and contributions. Well, you are tuned into Law Focus, but before we get into our main discussion right now, let us first look at the hottest and the biggest legal stories of the week. Here are our legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of the, stories of the week, it's Legal Hotspots. And yet again, our famous and flamboyant Mr. Jacob Zuma, the former president, is back in the news. This time, it is for the Zondo Commission. That's the Commission on State Capture. It's been confirmed that Mr. Zuma will appear before the commission, probably as a witness sometime in July. According to media reports, the former president is is expected to appear uh, during the course of sort of 15 to 19 July. That's if everything lines up perfectly and everything is in order. Uh, But it's not clear yet whether he's simply going there to testify or whether he's going to cross-examine any witnesses who've implicated him in the State Capture Commission. Remember, he has been named a few times and he will then... Uh, normally have the right to cross-examine where he has been implicated. Now, earlier this morning, his lawyer, Dan Manta, told News24 that uh, uh, his client, Mr. Zuma, will be attending and that he is relishing uh, the moment. How many times have we heard relishing the moment, it's waiting for my day in court? There are some matters that have been running for over a decade with the former president and we're still relishing the moment. Well, I so think either way, it's going to be interesting to actually watch out and listen for how that is going to unfold, whether he's going to actually drop some bars um, against some of his former colleagues or subordinates I might actually work half days or take time off just to watch those few days of testimony we should all it's going to be the best entertainment but it's not supposed to be entertainment this is actually very important to be quite honest and then in our other story we've got the child center for law that says that children should not be arrested for smoking dacha so you remember last year the constitutional court ruled that cannabis can is now legal for the private use by an adult in their private space. Yes, yes. And not in public, but they can have it on their person in limited amounts and they can use it in private space. Right. And this obviously was for people over the age of 18. Yes. 
but now as it is with all mind altering substances only over the age of 18 <laughs> is it legal but now we've got the censor saying that you know you actually don't know the circumstances under which children would smoke marijuana so don't prosecute them don't treat them like criminals um instead maybe there should be leeway there should be a different way of dealing with children who are caught smoking cannabis so we don't know how this is going to unfold what do you think about this well i have two stances on it if 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 we're saying you know children who are caught smoking cannabis shouldn't be prosecuted i'm 100 percent behind that we we for instance do not prosecute generally speaking we don't prosecute children who are found to be uh, uh, drinking alcohol uh, we don't prosecute them for that reason we we have other measures you know we divert them we send them to rehab and so on and therapy uh, so on that front i support the idea that one shouldn't um, prosecute a minor simply for the, for smoking cannabis what i don't support and I, i'm not sure if this is where it's going is to legalize the use of private use of cannabis for minors which no it, it it just wouldn't work for me it just doesn't make any sense for me that one yeah it's a difficult one i guess i don't know did it make a difference does it make a difference in other parts of the world where perhaps the legal age for drinking is 21 does do those things actually make a difference at all um is it a fear is it a legitimate fear that we have because now the children can also now decide to say i'm not smoking because i'm bored there's actually a health reason why my use of cannabis is important just like it is for an adult mm-hmm. is that something that is legitimate well the medical use of of, of, of cannabis is an entirely different conversation uh, and and that a medical practitioner would be able to to really answer whether um, X whether he's a child or a minor or a major does need the properties that are contained but that's in a very controlled environment we're talking here about children who simply uh, uh, roll up a zol and smoke it do we prosecute them no, I don't think so. But do we legalize it for them? Also, no, I don't think so. We should rather treat it uh, as it should be treated in the form of therapy and um, diversions and so on. Try and rehabilitate them before it gets any worse. Worse, before it gets into something more serious or it leads to behavioral problems. And then the last little uh, legal hotspot that I think we should discuss is for me a very worrying development. Employers apparently can now summon an employee's doctor or to write an affidavit or come to the office of the doctor and ask them to explain uh, uh, the information written on the sick note. Uh, the attorney, uh, Natasha Moni, I think it was, explained that uh, employers sometimes have doubts when sick notes are on a Friday or Monday or day after a public holiday, which is understandable, Uh, but that the employer is entitled to ask the doctor to draft an affidavit as uh, as a sworn document. Now, this worries me. I do not for the life of me see doctors taking time out of their schedules and not treating patients for an hour or whatever to do two or three affidavits a day, which must be done before a commissioner of oath. So you must go out to the office, find a commissioner of oath, and then draft it, and then say, I just don't know how that's going to work in practice. If that's the case, I'm worried that a lot of people are not going to get the doctors um, um uh, to draft sick oh, affidavits uh, because the doctor's simply too busy, and you can't subpoena the doctor to to do. I mean, the employer can't subpoena the doctor to, to draft the affidavit. Uh, I'm not impressed. I guess also, and it's not perhaps only the time factor. Um, for the doctors who are now supposed to go and do this whole affidavit, that might be an issue. It's also, well, if I look at it. This is not a law that existed many years ago. It's something that's coming up now. So you might perhaps find that a lot of people might decide to go to your African kind of doctors as opposed to your degreed university kind of Western medication kind of doctor. And now that's almost... And if that's the case, why something like this would be necessary, it could come across as looking down on your indigenous uh, 
doctors um because then it's like they're not a real doctor so they need to always have an extra note that needs to accompany why they saw a particular person because obviously if a person is sick for a number of times also it takes away that person's privacy between them and the employer for them to then be like you are off this amount of times and I want to know why. So it's almost well, like breaking down some yeah. of those confidentiality principles yeah, we, that exist. We, we, because I don't know how far this, this affidavit has to go in explaining why it is um, the employee wasn't at work. And I worry um, that you now put the doctor in a situation where he might have to make disclosures which go against his own profession. I doubt that, I mean, in practice that they will do that. But why even put him in a position where that is a possibility? It's, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, I, I, I think that it's to curb uh, the fraudulent use of uh, prescriptions and uh, and hopefully of, also of, to of try and encourage people not to go off work so often if that's quite a thing nowadays well remember if if you do submit a fraudulent sick note that's a fairly serious offense mm. at work uh, and it will result in disciplinary hearing so i mean that should be enough for people and to verify a sick note is really not difficult i do it very often in, in practice as well. I, I do it very often. It's really not hard to verify uh, just to know whether they were there and uh, that the, the person that you're speaking to is a legitimate doctor. Very not, I really guess not hard it's unfortunate that the trust levels between employers and employees has actually now gotten to that point. I worry about it, but let's see how that pans out and works out in practice. Absolutely. Remember, you are listening to VAWFM with Millicent and Tepo, and you are welcome to join our conversation. We are talking about occupational injuries. Perhaps you want to tweet using the hashtag LawFocus on at VAWFM, and you want to tell us whether you know your rights with regards to occupational safety or any other uh, part about this topic that you think interests you, that is welcome. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the top of, the stories of the week, it's Legal Hotspots. And now it's time for our voxies. Let's hear what people on the street have to say. Most people don't know about occupational uh, safety. Just because of the reason that most people are from the outskirts of the country, not mainly inside the city. So people who live inside the city are the ones who are more concerned about these things of uh, occupational safety. Because really it's about safety in, your, in the building, for example, like a large, large building. Compared to me saying that I will learn or know occupational uh, safety at home in Limpopo, in Venda, in the rural place. There is, no need, there is no need for you to learn that things. They're not relevant. But when you come to the city, that's when you have to know the, 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 the procedures, the rules, about how do you become safe in these buildings. So what do I think about occupational safety in the workplace? I think that people are not informed in terms of their rights. I mean, for instance, I could use an example as school right, um, the institution that we're in, VITS, you find that cleaners don't have adequate equipment or adequate, you know, uniforms, for instance, like working boots. I mean, it's winter now, but you still find that cleaners still clean the floors with cold water, without any gloves, without any, you know, proper working material. So I think that that's another violation and it's not just an occupational rights kind of violation but it's also a human right violation because how it is in terms of the constitution people have certain rights and the very place where those rights are supposed to be upheld they're being infringed and that's the workplace i mean a um, lot of people i know um have got been have been hurt in in during their line of duty and they still haven't got paid. They are, they, they are still back to work, but they still have, they don't know that they were supposed to get paid for being injured at work and for sitting at home while they are recovering from their injury from work. And even today, um, companies are actually utilizing um, that people don't actually know. Hence, they will say they will give you your full pay and they actually don't know that they have to pay for the damages as well. It's interesting that many people do feel that the rights to uh, people knowing their occupational injuries uh, rights basically about the act and, you know, the recourse for the act is something big and it's something that a lot of people really aren't aware of. And I thought some of the points that were mentioned there were actually quite interesting. Yeah.
Yeah. I, it, it's it's not always an easily accessible part of the law, even though it, it has to do with work. Uh, a lot of people won't know precisely what's going on with uh, their occupational injuries or or, or health issues uh, and sometimes they only discover it much much later, much later. and there are you know we're going to discuss it a bit now but there are fairly tight time frames that you must comply with of course in order this to make use in order to make but they're tighter than normal yeah right. and so we are discussing the compensation for occupational injuries and diseases act shortly it's named Queda. Yeah, that's its, it's a short name. Yeah. yeah, and it came into effect on the 1st of March 1994 and it replaced the Workmen's Compensation Act. Yeah. So basically, what does this act say, uh, Tepo? So it puts an obligation on the employer, certain employers, uh, to pay amounts of money into a central fund that's held by the Compensation Commission. Uh, and the amount of money depends on how dangerous the work is, how many em- workers are employed, the type of work that you do. Um, so it puts an obligation on the employer to create sort of a nest egg, almost like an insurance policy for his employees in case they get injured or in case they develop a work-related illness. And of course, it's not that every single employer in South Africa has to uh, make payments to this fund. As a law firm, you probably wouldn't make payments to this fund because under what circumstances do you think people who work for you would get injured or get diseases? Probably none. Um, Mm. So there are certain people who are more prone um, and need this benefit. So what exactly then are these occupational injuries uh, that fall in the ambit of what is named as an occupational injury according to this act? Well, it's, it's if you're involved in an accident at work or develop an illness which is caused by your working conditions and then you can claim from the compensation uh, fund. Uh, Schedule 3 of the Act uh, does give us a few ex- few sort of examples and it elaborates a little bit. But if you think in South Africa we have a, a largely working class, um, we, we I would say a largely working class, uh, a group of people, so blue-collar workers who are exposed to machinery. Um, they go in underground if they're working in the mines. So miners, yeah. So I mean, boulders. there's a lot of hazards there uh, that that can happen, uh, and we need to be able to. You can't rely on an employer uh, only being able to by himself make provision for his employees. So we have a central fund. All the employers who are required to pay, make the payment and that money is used to sort of protect everybody yeah. who it applies to. And of course, I think if you go to the Act itself, those of you who are interested and do have the resources to do so, it's quite lengthy, but Schedule 3 of of the Act elaborates on this very point that TAPO yeah. has just made. There, there are some practical exclusions, okay? Yes, and let's talk one about of that. the exclusions has created a problem, but we'll get to it now. Well, the practical exclusion will be soldiers and people related to so people going into some, some military training. Normally, we're talking about basic training, people doing basic training, and also people who are already enlisted in the military. Also, police officers who are in the service of, of, of law enforcement in, in the Republic. Uh, they are independent contractors as well. That one is obvious. Now, soldiers and policemen have their own sort of safety nets. So that's why they don't really need this one. And then independent contractors, it is a little bit complicated to include an independent contractor in this because they largely work for themselves. They are not, they're not in an employer-employee relationship with the person who enlists their services. So that's a very important okay. one as well. And then the other specific exclusion was domestic workers. And that has uh, domestic workers who work in a private household. Yeah, okay. so I think that's actually interesting because... The Act does say domestic workers in private homes mm. um, are the ones who are excluded. Yeah. The ones who are not excluded are which ones? Well, I, I, I can't imagine that there's another type of domestic worker. But I suppose in theory you might be able to say there are domestic workers who don't work in a, a domestic home. They might say, for example, work in a hospice. You could say those are some domestic workers that work there. So your well. general kind of workers, yeah, your janitors. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but when the one that is excluded is the normal nanny 
or yeah, uh, usually. Uh, domestic helper that we have in our homes, those ones were excluded up until fairly recently. And that matter went to court recently. Yes, and we're going to talk about it a bit later. That's it's right. a very interesting development that has actually arose from them. Mm. Then, of course, there are certain conditions that have to be met for a claim to be paid out. And there are then conditions under which claims will not be paid. What are those? Right. So, if you are injured, it has to be at work, okay? So, let's, let, let's first discuss what you can't claim for. If it's not reported, the accident or the incident, the death or the diagnosis of your illness isn't reported within uh, 12 months, it excludes your claim. That's why it's so important for people to then know they, their rights and that this exists and that the time frames because that's where the law catches people out on the technicalities yeah. as well. Yeah. Now, 12 months doesn't sound like it's short. In reality, it can be extremely short uh, because uh, you may have such a serious injury that it takes you months to recover from it and you still may not know uh, what is going this. on mm. remember it's calculated not from when you recover it's calculated from the incident itself so yes. it's if it's after 12 months and it's still not reported it's too late it's, well you've got a problem okay if, if the injury results in three or, or, or three days or less work okay less than three days uh, and if it's as a result of completely your own wrongdoing um, and your employer is not really responsible for that as well okay yeah entirely you've, you've for instance, completely disregarded the rules and regulations. And then if you unreasonably refuse to have medical treatment, yeah. a large part of the claim is based on your medical treatment, your diagnosis, and the treatment you receive as a result of the diagnosis or as a result of the injury, whatever the case may be. And speaking about this part about the own, your own wrongdoing as well, um, the, the occupational injury also uh, notes that you should... Um, it should not be something that should have been foreseeable. Um, that's another, I think, important little um, principle that we need to take note there. So it's almost like it's sudden and we never really expected this. It just happened and it's like, okay, wow, what is this? No. Yeah. Now, the one thing that we didn't mention was the fact that a family member of a person who passed away on the job can also claim, okay? Yeah. A family member. So it's not only the person who's injured themselves. If it results in death, the dependents of those people can, can also claim. Okay. Who pays into the fund? Where does this money come from? Now, the fund is actually funded by employers. They must make a contribution, and there's a table to figure out how much they must pay, depending on the industry, how many employees they have, all of that. And they each month have to make a contribution to this one. So that's who makes the payment. There's no deduction from the employee themselves. It's just the employer who makes that contribution. That contribution. And what cannot you claim? Well, we've, we've, we've already discussed what, what you can't claim. So, we, so if, for example, you're off for three days or less, uh, you don't... Uh, uh, get medical treatment and you're supposed to get medical So I'm trying to compare it to like let's say your motor vehicle accident claims and ah. your medical negligence claims. Ah, okay. We know that there you are able to claim for general damages. Yes, pain and suffering <laughs> yes. which is the emotional kind of stuff yes, that yes, listen yes. I can't use uh, my mm. fingers anymore and mm. that takes away my dignity you mm. know kind of thing and so you can claim for that mm. but in this instance you actually can't claim for that and i wonder why you can't claim for that and it's for practical reasons i believe that you can't claim for that you can only claim uh for the loss of um you know your bodily injuries we can call it bodily so with the disease that you get the injury that you get or as a result of death from someone that you were dependent on. So we came for that, the things that we can see, that we can prove yes. with the human eye. Kind yes, of. It, it, but it's, it's, it's specifically exclude what we call general damages, which are now pain and suffering and so on. It must be concrete. The actual... Uh, your um, shoulder. Whatever it was whatever. that you injured. Yeah. That is what you claim against. Okay. Um, uh, absolutely. Okay. And then we know that there are also different types of compensation. So we've got medical costs, temporary disabilities, and as well as permanent disabilities. We also know that the fund is um, paid out by the compensation commissioner, who is the person admin, uh, who is selected, commissioned to administer the actual payments of the funds. Yes. 
uh, there are companies that might have insurance rights, yes. and uh, if your insurance is against like workplace injuries, then your insurance company will be the one that will make the payments for these injuries or diseases. See, as a, as a general rule of, of our law in South Africa, you may never be compensated twice for the same damage. So if, for instance, an insurance company it covers you for a particular incident or injury, um, then uh, you wouldn't be able to claim from a different source. So it's once okay. and for all. Yes. yes. And so if you're compensated by insurance, well, then you're no longer there, the problem. Can it also be a lump sum, the amount, or does it have to be monthly installments? No, it can be a lump sum. It can be a lump sum. No, it can be a lump and sum. And finally... In, in, in practice, the processing of the claim may take uh, some time uh, just because of the practicalities and how we sometimes function in South Africa, it can sometimes take a bit longer. And so at the end of the claim, they may simply just boom, pay you out. Yeah. And someone listening might realize that they are interested in lodging a claim um, or they know someone whom this can be very important information for. Where do you go if you need to claim from the compensation fund? You know, first I would actually go, the Compensation Commission is, is not difficult to find. Their, their headquarters are in Pretoria, so you can you can Google them. But in, in the most practical place to start your inquiry for this would be the Department of Labor. And then you would be able to get some advice or some indication of whether, A, you fall within this category of employer, or employee, rather, um, who can claim, and then you can run through the process. They'll then, uh, they may not assist you directly in doing, but they will assist you, for example, in giving you the correct information to point you in the correct direction. But start at the Department of Labor. It's normally a good place to start. Okay. Well, you are tuned into Val FM, and you are able to actually tweet us on at VowFM using the hashtag LawFocus, which uh, is being held in studio by Millicent and Seppo. LawFocus, ending you your rights. Okay, so in 2012, there was a very sad incident that took place. There was this lady who was a domestic worker and she was washing the windows of the house, the home where she was employed. Uh, she might have been standing on something, but there was definitely a pool right behind her. She yeah. was partially blind. And while she was washing the windows, uh, she slipped. She fell into the pool. Yeah. This lady could not swim. Yeah, she couldn't swim. And, and, and so she drowned. She drowned, yeah. And died. Yeah. Uh, and so this matter now uh, created some... Uh, it brought into stark focus what we were talking about earlier, that... Um, domestic workers who work in private residences are not able to claim from the compensation fund. And for a long time have not been protected. Right. Her daughter, Maria Matlangu, then when she actually went to try and see if she can claim, found out, oopsie, uh, no, it's not you possible. are not covered. Your mother was not covered because of the fact that she is a domestic worker. Now, recently this year, this case started off in 2015, um, some time, but this year, the North Gauteng High Court gave a ruling that Section 1 has been declared unconstitutional. Of course, there were many different um, organizations that were part of this litigation and that included the South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union, the United Domestic Workers of South Africa, the Witzlord Clinic, as well as the Socio-Economic Rights Institute, and that is SERI. SERI then went further and asked for an amendment that the amendment of the law should apply retrospectively. The amendment yeah. that Section 1 was actually declared unconstitutional should yeah. apply retrospectively. This would obviously mean that her client, the client can then uh, be paid out for yes. the claim. Yes. Well, well, what makes that special is that generally uh, where we have a ruling in South Africa, it does not apply uh, retros retrospectively. And so a special application has to be made for that. Um, what we have to look at as well is that the... Um, the the domestic workers are uh, a big part of our our economy and everybody 
either you know knows one has one related to one and uh, this court case is very important the question of retroactivity or retrospectivity hasn't been decided yet okay okay and we are going to be joined on the line by Ms. Kilebukhile Kunowu who is from Siri um, the very important institute that we have just mentioned now and she's going to help us uncover some of the elements of this discussion Ms. Kilebukhile are you here with us on Law Focus? Hi, Millicent. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm together with Tepo right here. How do we pronounce your name, your surname? Kuno. Kuno. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> like, let's start with the fact that Section 1 has been declared unconstitutional. What exactly does that mean? So, essentially, what was, what was argued was to have that specific section in the COIDA Act to be declared un- unconstitutional. So, that section... Um, spoke about, um, basically gave a definition of employees covered under the Act and excluded explicitly domestic workers who are employed in private homes from that definition of employees. And so what was argued on the 23rd of May um, um, last month was to have that declared as unconstitutional and invalid as part of of a larger um, argument to to realize the rights of domestic workers in terms of COIDA. And it's a very monumental um, fight that you guys have actually engaged in. Why did you choose to help domestic workers in particular? So at Seri, we work with communities and other organizations and individuals as well to promote um, and realize socioeconomic rights. In the past, we've We've um, represented precarious workers such as informal traders um, and farm workers. And uh, this opportunity to represent domestic workers for us was quite meaningful um, because they're recognized as one of the most vulnerable occupational groups in South Africa. And so it's an honor for us to be involved in this case. Absolutely. And we do know that before they were excluded from COIDA, which is why you had to uh, engage in this very important litigation. Why do you think they were excluded in the first place? So there's been a few reasons that have been given. Um, so there was a report by the University of Western Cape Social Law Project um, about the, the compensation funds of the, the Department of Labor's justification for the exclusion of domestic workers. And mainly it had been that um, including domestic workers in this act would be logistically impossible to administer and because of reasons like the fact that it's provi- um, performed in a private home, which makes it difficult to control and inspect, um, and workers frequently have more than um, one employer. And it's, it's quite unregulated, even though there are laws that cover the sector, it's quite unregulated, and these are some of the reasons that were given. Um, in my opinion, I think part of the reason is that there's this, this public perception that domestic work is not work. And somehow um, it's this undervalue, undervaluing of domestic work has sort of seeped into our, 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 our legislation and, and policy as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's not work. Um, and so why yeah. include it in, in certain laws? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about the, the unconstitutionality, now, do you think that it will be uh, practically implemented um, that they are included because of the inherent difficulties, say, for example, of of inspection and making employers who are, uh, you know, at home and, you know, ordinary people comply with this law. Can it be practically implemented now that we're probably going to have a change in the law? Yes, so this is one of the main challenges is um, in- the inclusion of domestic workers in the amendment of COIDA is monumental. Um, and it's very important to have to have it reflected um, in legislation. However, you point out that, and you rightly point out that it's it's been a challenge for the Department of Labor to enforce um, the laws that that cover domestic workers. Yeah. And so, part of the challenge and an opportunity that this this case gives us is a sort of a public awareness campaign of sorts to be done by the Department of Labor to educate employers and for, for you know, a change in conversation that a lot of the times when we talk about domestic worker issues, we're talking about 
domestic worker rights where the focus is on domestic workers themselves. Whereas actually employers of domestic workers need to start to realize that they're employers and they have obligations under the law. And so creativity would have to be applied in how um, we control and inspect the this, this space which is in the private in the private household, which is quite difficult. Yes. But I'm sure if we are creative and we apply our minds, um, it can be done. Other countries in South America, um, all over the world in the United States are able to lend some structure to this environment which is considered private okay now what do you say to an individual who says hang on now i have a domestic worker in the past you know everything was between me and her okay then they said i must do uif then they said well there's a minimum minimum uh, Wage. wages and now i have to comply with coida listen maria i can't help you but listen you have to go now what do you say to people that are always saying, but I can't afford this, I have to let it go? Oh, hang on, let me get somebody from a little bit north of the border who doesn't have, to, I don't have to comply with this. Aren't you afraid of that knee-jerk reaction? Mm. Well, definitely, you definitely have people saying things like that. Um, I, I, my opinion is that that's an excuse. If you look at what people spend their money on, um, you can tell that the reasons why wages for domestic workers and a lot of these youth, the, the laws like UIF and, and in future the compensation fund, um, the contributions that go to these, these um, um, arrangements for domestic workers' social protection, you see that it's because the work is undervalued. There's an, there's an attitude that a lot of us have um, in looking at what, what contribution domestic workers are making to our lives and to, to the economy. We don't realize that. And this is why you can get um, responses like that. One of the things also that employers need to realize, whether they're employing someone who's in South Africa or employing someone who's undocumented um, from another country, is that you, as a citizen of South Africa, you are still not supposed to act unlawfully. Um, just because someone might not be covered by certain labor laws doesn't give you sanction to, or doesn't give you license, sorry, to act unlawfully under the, the, law, the law of South Africa. If you're an employer, there are certain obligations. And if you are found to, to um, not be following these, these laws, then you sh- the Department of Labor should be able to take action against you. Those are very important points. And now that you have successfully litigated, what is the next step going forward? for Siri in this case? Yes, so the next step is to argue for the, for the declaration of invalidity to be applied retrospectively. That's the, next, that's the very next step, um, which we hope in a couple of days we'd be able to argue in front of the, the judge at the North Houghton High Court. Do you think you'll be successful? Um, yes. Sorry? Do you think you'll be successful? Um, I, I can't say, actually. I, this, it's a, it is a difficult difficult case um it has to do with you know a fund that needs contributions from employers um and applying it retrospectively to a group of people who were not obligated by the law to um contribute to it is going to be it's going to be difficult to to be to do but i think it's definitely something that can be done yeah i think we need to yeah to act creatively in in situations like this and yeah with some creativity and yeah um you know a belief that it is the just thing to do to make sure that people who have gotten injured or the families of domestic workers who have died during the course of their work are able to get justice in the past. Absolutely. You know, we wish you totally the best going forward and hopefully the outcome of the retrospective application will be successful. Thank you so much, then. That was Muskile Vukile. Kono, who joined us from Siri, uh, just to give us an update on their development concerning the domestic workers case that they have been working on and they've done a good work so far, so good. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, conversation. I'm, 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 I'm very interested to find out how it is, uh, um, how the, um, uh, the ruling will go for the, uh, for the retroactivity. You know, it's uncommon in our law to have retroactivity in a change of law. Uh, because it has usually uh, all sort of unintended consequences. Yeah, what they're doing is very unconventional. Yeah, yeah it, it is. Um, I, I would, uh, I would have, I'd like to see how that pans out in practice and whether it might not bankrupt the the compensation fund, you know. But I, I mean, if if they did make a ruling like that, they'd have to make some contingencies for that as well. All right.
So now we're going to be talking to Ms. Gloria Kente uh, from, and she's an organizer for South African Domestic Services and Allied Workers Union. Um, it's a union that uh, lobbies and supports as well as um, at times uh, presses issues and brings them to light that affect domestic workers all over the country. Like we say, domestic workers are a big part of our lives in South Africa. They've always been. I know quite a few of my own relatives and my grandmother was a domestic worker. So it's, an, it's something that is also close to my heart. Mm. Uh, Ms. Kente, hello. Hello. Hi, welcome to Law Focus. You're speaking to Tapu Mwabi and uh, Millicent. Um, can you give us a little bit of background into what it is that the your union does? Um, our union is South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union. Mm. What we're doing in our union is service for the domestic workers. Our services is to protect the domestic workers from their employers. And then we educate the employers about their the, the domestic workers about their rights to know what they can do if they they, they are getting anything that is not uh, according to the law at their workplaces. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So recently, um, we've had domestic workers in the spotlight now. Uh, in, in, it was for a number of reasons, but the most recent one is the inclusion potentially in the in Koida, because before they were actually excluded from that. Um, and, and I know that there were some demands made in a memorandum to the Minister of uh, Labour. And can you tell us a little bit more about what that memorandum was about and what it contained? Uh, because we... As the domestic workers, we were waiting for a long time for um, for the government, like the Department of Labor, to include the domestic workers to the act. But it takes long time. We fight, but we don't get any uh, 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 we, we don't get anything from the government. So on the 17th of June, we decided to go to, in front of the parliament to make our voice to be heard by the Minister of Labor. So there we were demanding the COIDA from the Department of Labor that the the domestic workers must have that law. They must be included. Sorry? You say they must be included in COIDA. Yes, we must be included to to the COIDA. Because there are many domestic workers here in South Africa that they get hurt at their workplaces. Some of them, they are dying. Some of them, they get burned when they are cooking food in the employer's house. Some of them, they are breaking their legs when they are working in the employer's houses. But there is no compensation for them. And why do you think that for such a long time, domestic workers were not included in COIDA? Why do you think that the government actually did that? That is the answer that we were looking for from the government, because there are many meetings that we sit with the previous uh, 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 um, Minister of Labor. We send letters, we met with them, but there was no improvement. There was nothing that is coming from them. It's only the promise that they they don't fulfill it. Mm. Mm. And so the workers now, they get tired of it. That's why now we decided to go to do the protest in front of the parliament. Do you have any assurance now that they actually will then live up to the new promises that they have made to you? What are they saying now? Are they promising... Well, are they saying when are they going to deliver? When they're going to deliver on yes. making because, this? Because our general secretary, Metal that boy, she is the one who always meet with those big uh, people like ministers. She was in Geneva now for for two weeks. Then she met with the ministers there from South Africa. So she spoke with them about this. And then they did promise her that, yes, Metal, we saw that in, in South Africa, there is movement in front of the parliament while we're sitting here in Geneva. 
So we saw what are you, your, your domestic workers are fighting for. So the minister will come back to you and then there will be, the, 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 the court will be signed. Mm. So we, we, yes. we, we've also got a ruling from the, Pretoria, the, the High Court in Pretoria, uh, which has declared the, uh, a portion of COIDA unconstitutional, the one that relates to who's an employee, who's included, who's excluded. Uh, it was declared yes. unconstitutional. What is your plan yes. going forward for your members in light of this ruling? Our plan, we are busy planning now but as I said, we are waiting for to hear from the government. But we're still going to uh, uh, protest for this case of this man, the, 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 the late mama who died at the workplace. Okay. Yes. We're going to continue with that case. Yes, yes, yes. There's, still, there's still a ruling yeah. that's waiting on that case, correct? Yes. A, yes, a portion yes. of it, yes. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Yes. Uh, and, and tell us what kind of... Um, Challenges. I want so when you're dealing with employee employers, what sort of challenges do you get from employers now when you're trying to do your work? What's the pushback or what support do you get from them? Oh, uh, the, if we talk about the employers, the employers they never support the the, the domestic workers. There are many challenges that the domestic workers are facing, especially um, now with, with uh, the domestic workers are getting abused. At their work, emotional, physical, sexual harassment, and verbal. So now we are trying, but as I said, um, my general secretary was in Geneva and they were discussing about this abuse of the, the quality, uh, uh, abuse at the world of work. So they were busy discussing about it, but there's a good news about it because. There is a, a, a convention that is it's signed there in Geneva by ILO that uh, we have to now ratify here in South Africa. But it was the whole world that was sitting there discussing about this. We hope that it is going to work for the for the domestic workers, the convention that is coming. They call it Convention 190. Ah, okay, okay. I understand now why you went to Geneva. And it sounds like you've got, um, you're empowering the domestic workers. But I want to know, how are you going to make sure that employers are now held accountable? Because domestic workers are vulnerable people and they don't have much power even uh, at the workplace. Yes, they don't have power, but as we are the voice of them as a union, we always go to knock at the door of the department and ask the department to look at the matters of the domestic workers because they have uh, inspectors that they must go to to do their work out in the field to check if the domestic workers, if they, they, they I mean, the laws that they, 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 we have here in South Africa, are they, are they um, um, employers uh, comply from them or what? We are going to do the same thing even to this uh, uh, convention and the COIDA. We want to make sure if the, the, the Department of Labor is working. Mm. Okay. Yes. And finally, how effective uh, has this act been for you? The COIDA yes. Act. How So the COIDA Act hasn't been effective for you much uh, before, but like right now with everything that's happening, you do believe that we're going to see changes, yes? Yes. Okay. No, we, we, we wish you the best, uh, Ms. Gloria, for you and uh, the team of people whom you are working with at your organization. And we hope that everything goes well, even the matter that is still uh, to come up to be um, detailed no, the by last the portion that is going to be decided. Yes. We're hoping yeah. that yes. everything will go well for you and we hope all the best for all the work that you well, do. Well, uh, as an attorney, I'm hoping for a, a fair outcome. It Let has to be like fair. A fair outcome, yes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. That was Ms. Gloria Kensi who was joining us on the line. And right now we are going to take a short break. But before we do that, remember that you can still uh, join us um, with the, on the conversation. We are discussing occupational injuries. Right now we were discussing about domestic workers, which is a very interesting case. So tweet us on at VowFM.
using the hashtag LawFocus. LawFocus on Balfang 88.1. Point of Information. Okay, welcome back. You are with Melissa Ntindiweni and Sapa Mohapi. Uh, well, you heard the points that were raised by the two ladies. Tapo. Yeah, I did. Domestic workers are a vulnerable group of people. We cannot deny that, can we? No, I, I, I don't think we can deny that. They're, they're a very vulnerable group. And would you also agree that they are undervalued? Yeah, I would say that they are undervalued. Uh, not only that, but um, they are a massive contributor to the fabric and even the economy of South Africa. There are people who are raised on the wages that their parents earn as domestic uh, workers. So it's not something that is sort of uh, limited to an el- a very elite group. Mm-hmm. Or when it's quite ubiquitous in South Africa. Mm. And so our laws actually do need to be constantly adapting, changing and adjusting to ensure that they keep up with the times of today. And I guess that's why the demand for the inclusion into COIDA was so important and that's why the street protest had to take place for the domestic workers saying that, you know what, we also deserve to be treated like real employees um, as opposed to be treated like invisible like, well, people. Well, like servants, yeah. Yes, like <laughs> worse like than servants, like slaves sometimes, honestly, you know. I just thought it was interesting, though, how uh, Ms. Kilebukhile earlier on conceded to the fact that the reality is that it will be logistically impossible to administer, um, you know, the new acts with domestic workers included because well, of very many, difficult, various, <laughs> various <laughs> reasons. Yeah. yeah, and I um, know that is something that you totally agree with. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I recognize the fact that it is a very, very difficult thing to implement because you're, you're going into essentially what is a private space even though for the domestic worker that's a work environment uh, for the employer it is a private space that they are in and it's difficult to access that very easily and also how do you do that but i do think that we do have enough uh, sort of know-how and 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 and, uh, ability in south africa to make it work we don't we can't apply the same principles say to a large mining company that we would apply to a domestic situation so it has to kind of be tailored not necessarily the 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 act it you know the act been broadly speaking but specifically to domestic workers we can tailor it to say but we can work along these parameters to make it work and i'm definitely a firm believer that you know what just because the law has been a particular way for hundreds of years does not mean that it has to continue always being that way so i'm in total support of as actually uh being unconventional working towards changing the laws to make them more humane more human rights oriented for everyone not just for some people no matter how hard it's going to be because i know it's a private space like you're saying and that's true but so much also goes on in private spaces that people get away with because it's a private space so that's something that i guess we need to actually critique and look at yeah yeah i will i'm i i do agree with you i i I do of course because i'm an attorney i'm almost a natural cynic there are one or two points they will have to try to figure out before they really press forward with the with the amendments and ensure that they were, we can't have a, a document that's good on paper and doesn't translate into practice. Yes. So if we have an amendment, it must be a workable amendment. Uh, you will obviously have a fallout or some kind of um, people, let's say, who don't agree with the change and then will, for that reason, uh, offload or trying to now get rid of 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 of, of their employees, their domestic workers, because oh, I don't want to comply Which with this. Which is the unfortunate part. It, it is, but it's a, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't make adjustments to the law. The law should be alive, and the law should be constantly adapting. It can't be something that just stays okay. It's going to be an interesting one to see these employers of domestic workers, in particular, being held accountable. And we are going to be on the lookout for this matter. It is definitely not the last that you will hear of it. No. It's Especially with the ruling coming up um, soonish, Shortly. I think. Yeah. Yes. From our producer, Sinda Honde, Honde, our technical producer, Kukwano Sirami, our law focus researchers, Sisetu Zingelwa, Nalka Musita, Khalaletang, Khami, Sipati Makafani, Tsepo Mohapi, and myself, Millicent Ndiweni. Thank you for tuning into Law Focus tonight. Thank you and good night. Good night. Law Focus, Gonzalo 88.1, Point of Information. No Focus Podcast.